God bless you. All four of you. All right, we're going to dismiss our kids now to Promised Land. So all of you that are fifth grade and under, you can head out to Promised Land with your teachers. And uh, we look forward to hearing about how exciting your morning goes. For the rest of you, you might want to grab your Bible. As we've been telling you, we're going to be in the Gospel of Matthew for several weeks to come. And so we encourage you to bring your Bible Open it up to Matthew's Gospel. We'll uh, do a little reading in chapter 3 and in chapter 4 in just a moment. So, we are on a hunt. I said to you last week that for some period of time that God will determine, we're going to do this as long as we feel like God's leading us to do it, we are going to open up the Scriptures and we are going to go hunting good news because we're in a bad news day and we think that God has a lot of good news for each and every one of us and so like miners that are looking for gold we are going to mine the scriptures for all those nuggets of good news all right so several of you did a great job last week and you found some great nuggets before I could even talk about what they were. Uh, I'm going to encourage you to do that again this week. Take that connection card. There's a little blank area somewhere on there. And anytime you think that God's impressing something upon your thoughts that you would classify as good news, I'd encourage you to write it down. And uh, in just a few minutes, I'm going to ask uh, a few of you just to spontaneously share. I found this good news. Okay, we're going to do that in just a moment. But before we get to the good news, there is bad news, right? I mean, we talked last week, uh, there is no such thing as good news unless there's also bad news. And most of us watched a lot of this bad news unfold on the television all week. We're told that the death toll in Haiti uh, as a result of the 7.0 earthquake will probably surpass 100,000. They've already had mass burials of hundreds at a time. This morning I read that 40,000 have already been buried. And so when you think about the disruption, the disturbance, the devastation, that's pretty bad news. And it got me to thinking... You know, we're still so early in the 21st century. We just, we're just at the first decade of the 21st century. What's been going on in this category of disasters just in this decade? And, of course, I was reminded, as I'm sure you are, of the uh, hurricane that struck along our Gulf Coast that we call Katrina in 2005, where we had over 1,800 people perish in that. And billions of dollars of devastation, 80% of New Orleans underwater at one point. You can even imagine that. But then there were some that maybe, because they're not as close to us, we didn't pay quite as much attention to. The 2004 uh, earthquake in the Indian Ocean that resulted in tsunamis and literally devastated many countries around that rim. And a death toll something over 230,000. 
Can you even imagine? And then in 2008, the cyclone that hit Burma, 146,000 dead. Also in 2008, an earthquake in China, 68,000 dead. And I could have kept going, but you're getting the picture. And that's just in the first decade of the 21st century. Go back into the 20th century. And it's just heartbreaking to see how much disaster has wrecked havoc in our world and in our lives. And I hadn't even scratched the surface to talk about war or disease or poverty. These are just natural disasters we've talked about so far. So what are we to make of that? And then in your own world, in your own life, in your own family, you know, the earthquake, the volcanic things that happen in in your own circumstances. What are we to make of that? Where is God and what is God up to? Well, I want us to look in the scriptures. I want us to hear the word of God. And here's your prayer. God, would you take the scriptures and speak into my life? Help it make sense to me. And we begin in chapter 3 of the Gospel of Matthew. Last time we were introduced to John the Baptist, the cousin of Jesus who was preparing the way for the coming of Jesus into this world. We pick it up in verse 11 of chapter 3. So then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John. What a good day to talk about that. But John tried to deter him, saying, I need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? Jesus replied, let it be so now. It is proper for us to do this to fulfill all righteousness. Then John consented. And as soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. And at that moment, heaven was opened and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, this is my son whom I love. With him, I am well pleased. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the desert to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. And Jesus answered, It is written, Man does not live on bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down. For it is written, here's what the Bible says, he will command his angels concerning you and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus Answered him, it is also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. 
Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. Jesus said to him, away from me, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him and angels came and attended him. Now keep your Bible open as we talk about these verses and what transpired in the life of Jesus. And you're looking, you're hunting, you're mining for the gold of good news, okay? Here we go. Temptations. What in the world is that all about? Why does such a thing exist? And what's going on in us when they do? Well, the definition that I've used for years that has come to mean a lot to me for temptation is this. It is having legitimate, God-given desires but seeking to satisfy them in illegitimate, God-forbidden ways. Temptation is about taking legitimate, God-given desires, like hunger, thirst, having a sense of significance, relational intimacy, taking legitimate, God-given desires, and seeking to satisfy them in illegitimate, God-forbidden ways. And when we're in a moment such as now, and our thinking is being filtered and, and guided by Scriptures, one would ask, why would I ever seek to satisfy legitimate, God-given desires in illegitimate, God-forbidden ways? Why would I ever do that? Let me just... Address the things that God has already instilled in me in God-given kinds of ways. Well, here's why that we are tempted not to do so. The first is what I'll call medication. We all have certain levels, significant levels of pain in our lives. We have disappointments. We have people that hurt and wound us. We have situations that discourage us, maybe even bring us to the brink of despair. Life is getting dark and bleak. Hope seems to be vanishing. So that kind of pain in us kind of drives us rather than turn to God and say, God, would you help? God, would you touch? God, would you heal? God, would you do something about the pain in my life? We turn to something else. We'll turn to food. We'll turn to intoxication through a drug or an alcoholic drink. We'll turn to some kind of illicit experience with another person. And by doing that, activate some kind of pleasure center in our lives and thereby medicate the pain that's going on in us. Another thing that temptation can be about is what I would call abdication. That is to say, where I have a sense of direction, I have a sense of purpose, but I see that it could be easier than what it looks like it's going to be. And so I try to skip some steps, if you will, some process, some life experience that I ought to be going through 
so that I can likewise minimize the discomfort and the pain that can come with life. Now, we're looking at the life of Jesus. He's been uh, in the wilderness for 40 days and nights. He's been fasting. He's hungry. That's a God-given legitimate uh, desire that the enemy of our soul is seeking to tempt him to satisfy in a God-forbidden, illegitimate way. And what was that? To be uh, spectacular and be demonstrative and to do little miracles according to his own bidding rather than the bidding of the Father. And not only that, why had Jesus come into the world? Jesus, who is God, gave up glory and uh, his place at the right hand of the Father and clothed himself with flesh, incarnated himself so he could come and do the work of a suffering servant who would take on the sins of the world and be an atoning sacrifice. And Satan says, you know what? You're the Savior. You're, you're going to be the Messiah. You don't have to go through all those steps of suffering. Just leap from the temple right now and his angels will catch you and not even a, a foot will be harmed by the fall. Abdicate the whole process and just get to the bottom line, to the end. That's kind of the same deal that happened with Abraham, right? God says to Abraham, you're going to be the father of a great nation. And he waited and he waited. And finally, he had a child by a servant girl rather than his wife with whom he was in covenant. Same thing happened with Moses. You're going to be a deliverer of my people who are slaves to the Egyptians. And one day he goes out and he sees an Egyptian oppressing a Hebrew. And he kills the guy. Shortcuts. Abdicating the process. Getting ahead of what God's up to with you. And on both accounts, Jesus said, I will not satisfy these legitimate desires in illegitimate ways. Third thing, this is a matter of frustration. See, when you start talking about process, when you start talking about steps, when you start talking about time, and I want things right now, immediately, yesterday, then frustration leads us to get ahead of God, to go around God. So these are some of the things that are going on with us in temptation. How did Jesus deal with that? Well, the first thing that we saw in our scripture reading is what I will call identification. Jesus came to John in the Jordan River. And by the way, you're looking at a shot at the place in the Jordan where most scholars think he was baptized. And he submitted himself to John for John's baptism. In other words, he wanted to identify with God and with the work of God that was happening through John. And so he took a step of identification with the person and the work of God by being baptized. Now, John was doing a baptism of repentance, right? So he was calling people that were sinners to kind of turn their heart around and began to go in the direction of God so that they could know the saving work of God that would come through Jesus. Now, Jesus was not a sinner. He was not there to take on a baptism uh, to mark his repentance. He had nothing to repent of. It was simply and only a point of his identifying with God and the work of God that was coming through the person of John. And it was also a way of identifying. 
with all those who had broken lives for whom he had come. Second thing that we see that Jesus did, he not only engaged in identification, ways to show his allegiance to God, but he was also engaged in what I would say memorization. That is to say, he took the scriptures that were available to him in that day. And he read and he reflected and he meditated and he studied and he memorized them. Because when he finds himself being tempted, guess what? The devil knew scripture also. And the devil had a way of plucking scripture out of context and spinning it in such a way to mislead and to misdirect Jesus' life. But because Jesus had the word in his heart... He was able to stand against the deceptions and the schemes of our enemy. Notice in the third place what I would just simply call fortification. He not only engaged in in identification with God and memorization of the word of God, but in fortification of his heart, of his thinking, of his feeling and emotions. Now, there's a lot of practices that we can do that partner with God in fortifying our heart. Memorization is one of those that I've already mentioned. But the other one that is highlighted in the story is that he had been fasting. And it was an extensive fast, 40 days. And it leads some to conclude, well, he must have been at a super weak moment when the devil came and tempted him. But in fact, the reverse would be true. For those of you that have fasted, you have discovered that as you abstain from whatever, food, media, various relational experiences, as you abstain from those things, you create greater capacity for God in your life. And in so doing, it strengthens and it fortifies your heart, your resolve, your thinking, your feelings. And finally, notice that Jesus Engaged in what I would call subjugation. That is to say, he spoke into his feelings, into his self, and said, not me, not my will, but the Father's will. That is, in essence, what he was doing when the devil had him up on uh, the perched mountain place to look at all the kingdoms of the world and say, I'll give all that to you right now if you just worship me. And he's like, this, no, this isn't about me. You worship only God. This isn't about me satisfying what I want, what I see, what I need. This is about me being faithful to the Father. Now, I think... That I've just given you a lot of good news. And so I'm going to take just a moment to see what you gleaned. Can we do that? I sure had fun with it last week. Maybe we'll have a little fun again today. Anybody say, you know what? So far out of what I've been listening and how I've been kind of prayerfully taking in what God's trying to say during this hour. Here's a piece of good news that I got. Okay. Yes, ma'am. Temptation cannot overcome me. Temptation cannot, it can, but Jesus can also overcome it. And that's kind of what we're talking about is how he prevails. Somebody else, thank you. All the scriptures that I learned when I was a kid 
come to value how about that? All the scriptures you learn as a kid, man, they come to play. They, they have great value through the rest of your life. Good. Paul. Yeah, yeah. So the power to give up stuff comes from God. And it's a tremendous trade-off for what you get in return. You get the fullness of himself. Thank you. Somebody else? Yes, ma'am. It's impossible for God to abandon me. It's impossible for God to abandon me. Check out Romans 8 on that, too. Somebody else? Good news. You're taking it away with you today. Yeah, Ron. Temptation is easier to resist through through God than it is to get out of by giving into it. Okay, temptation is easier to resist by God with God than it is by just trying to get out of it yourself. No, when you get, when you when you give into the temptation, then that's hard to get out of. When you give into it, it's like easier. Resisting it is easier. Okay, thank you, Bruce. God's love can overcome all fear. God's love can overcome. All fear. Of course, that's one of the pains that we have that we tend to medicate. But God's love overcomes that kind of fear. Anybody else? All right. Thank you. I enjoyed that. I've got a couple of things I'm going to add to that. All right. So the first is this. God still invites us to identify with him. I think that is incredibly good news. Now, I don't know about you. Actually, I do. But uh, in my family, and in most families I've observed, there's always that kind of strange cousin Charlie. You know what I'm saying? He's just a little different than everybody else in the family. And, you know, maybe he, you know, can't control what he's going to say. And he's just kind of inappropriate sometimes. And maybe he doesn't groom himself. Or, you know, who knows what the deal is. But... He's in the family. He's blood. You just kind of uh, accepting, right? Jesus never feels that way about any of us. There is never a reluctant identifying with him by way of his invitation. He absolutely delights in you identifying with him. You go, how does that happen? Well, we identify with him when we get baptized. We identify with him when we step into a covenant with a local church and we're in community. We identify with him when we get married in the name of Jesus, when we raise our children in the name of Jesus, when we serve other people in the name of Jesus. There's a hundred ways that you can identify with Jesus and every time you do it's a delight to him and he's opened arm and he welcomes it and that's good news I can know him I can have him in my life I can do life with him he wants that a second piece of good news to me 
is that scripture memorization still frees us from deception. It's unbelievably powerful in our lives. Now, you know, where we live here on the east side of Seattle, it's a fairly affluent area, right? I mean, money's a big deal around here. And, you know, actually money's a big deal to us anyway because we kind of like having it more than not having it, right? Are you with me? Yeah. Uh, okay, just, okay. <laughs> that's, that's good news to me. So, uh, the fact of the matter is, if we're not careful, if we don't guard our hearts, money will become too big of a deal. And so scriptures like the love of money is the root of all evil, First Timothy 6, has been very, very important to me to live in this area. And that it is more blessed to give than to receive. Acts 20, that's very important to me. And then when Jesus said, hey, store up treasures for yourself in heaven where moth and rust cannot destroy rather than here on earth. Matthew 6, we're going to be in that in just a few weeks. Very, very important to me. So uh, in the next few days, some of you will be getting a letter from our church office. And uh, we do that every January where we uh, uh, give you documentation of the tithes and the offerings and the contributions that you've given to the Lord through this church in the past year. That has always been for me, when our children were uh, living with us in our home, a point for me to sit down at the table with them and to show them on paper, here's what our family has felt like God wanted us to give to him through his church over this past year. And so you just need to understand there's some things that we don't have, and there's some trips that we don't make, and there's some experiences that maybe some other people will have that we won't because we made a choice, as we felt God led us, to use our resources in this kind of way. You see, those kinds of uh, implementations of the Scriptures free us from deception. Deceptions, and we're just talking about money here. Deceptions that would say, you know, money will make you happy and money will take care of this problem and money will, uh, you know, relieve that pain or whatever. It can't do all that. And the scriptures will help you make sense of that. The third thing is that spiritual practices still fortify our hearts. I think that's good news. There are things that you can do that I can do. And engage God with that practice, and it fortifies and strengthens our hearts, our resolve, our capacity to stay faithful. Now, there are practices like praying and meditating and studying the scriptures and worship and giving and serving. I, I practice all those. A lot of you practice those. You know, one of the most important practices for me is solitude. Where out of all of the hurried, harried stuff that are, is around me, occasionally I'll take times to just get away and alone with God without a bunch of stuff around me. All those practices fortify, strengthen our hearts. And then subjugating pride, self, still magnifies God's presence in us. Friends, it's just... Not about you. Life is not about you. It's not about me. 
Life is about God and the things of God and the purposes of God and the invitations of God. And so every time, and by the way, pride often is made synonymous with arrogance, and it certainly is expressed in arrogance, but that's not the whole deal. Pride is simply making too much of self and too little of God. That's what pride in its essence is. Too much of self, too little of God. And so when I can subjugate pride and subjugate self to Christ, where he's bigger in my life and and me and my stuff is smaller in my life, that brings great power and great freedom, great capacity to know and experience God. Overcome temptation. Then the final piece of good news that I'm going to share with you is this. God is still working to redeem. Oh, thank you. Thank you, Lord, that you still work to redeem. Now, I don't want to gloss over where I began this this morning. There's a lot of bad news. Life is hard and harsh and brutal. And uh, back in the 50s, Archibald Maclish wrote a play that became rather popular and prominent in its time that was kind of a contemporary telling of the story of Job. And it was a famous line lifted out of that play that has been used time and time again, particularly by skeptics. If God is good, he's not God. If God is God, he's not good. Meaning, if God is good and so much awful stuff happens in this world, then he must not be God because he can't do a thing about it. But if God is God, he has all the power, all the wherewithal to do anything about everything, but he doesn't, then he's not good. And the testimony and the affirmations of the scripture is this. God is God and God is good. You say, well, then how do you reconcile all that stuff? Well, who uh, heard how Pat Robertson reconciled that this past week? Did you hear that? Anybody? Just uh, three or four of you? Okay. Not much of a news crowd here. Okay. But Pat Robertson said that this hurricane befell Haiti. Hurricane. I've got so much problematic thinking. Earthquake befell Haiti because they're cursed. And that they'd made a pact with the devil back, you know, in some formation time with the nation and all that kind of thing. And he has been skewered uh, ever since by Christians and non-Christians alike for saying such a thing. But here is the truth, friends. They are cursed. And so is the United States of America. And so is the entire Western Hemisphere. And so is the entire Eastern Hemisphere. So is this entire planet. So is every person that's ever drawn a breath. Because as we take a quick flashback to Genesis, 
And we watch God masterfully create this world and speak it into being with every act of creation. He says it is good. And by that, he didn't mean pretty good above average. When God said it is good, he basically was saying that's excellent. That's perfect. Every created thing. Perfect. Then you get to chapter 3. And Adam and Eve take of the forbidden fruit. They satisfy a legitimate, God-given desire to be like Him. In an illegitimate, God-forbidden way. And creation, not just humanity, all of creation crashed. And in that moment, all of creation became cursed. And we have been cursed from that day to this. And it's described like this. Uh, Adam, no longer will the fields yield its harvest to you easily. You'll have to work really hard. You'll have to labor. Apparently, there was a time when you didn't. It just gave up the, the crop. And ladies, from now on, you'll have to labor with a lot of pain to have children. Apparently, that wasn't going to be the case. And every time we look at cracked, parched ground that is in a drought, curse. And every time we see floods that's just wiping out everything, curse. And hurricanes and cyclones, curse. Earthquakes, curse. Death, curse. So, friends, here is what is remarkable. Here is the good news. In His graciousness, in His mercy, in His love, He redeems anybody or anything. That He would do that is unspeakably good. Now, so much of what is mystery to us and that we don't get is, how come these people get devastated and these people don't? How come these people die in an earthquake and these people don't? What we do know is this. It has nothing to do with how good or how bad they are. We do know that. Because there's some really good, God-loving, praying people that died in that earthquake. And there's some really rotten, lousy <laughs> You know, damaging this world kind of people that lived in that earthquake. So it has nothing to do with how good, how bad some people are. That's part of the mystery. I don't know, and you don't know. You can try to tell me you know, and I'll say you don't know. (laughs) How God is at work in ways that it befalls some people this way and it befalls other people that way. But here's what we do know. He is God and he is good. He still redeems. Unbelievable. He still redeems. And the Bible says there will come a day when every person who has had his redemptive touch on their life and they follow Jesus will be not only caught up and taken out of this world, but will be then brought into a new what? 
heaven and earth. I don't even know what all that's going to be about. I just know that this busted, cursed earth will also be redeemed. Because he still redeems. So, what are you going to do about all that? Will you believe that? Will you repent? Will you turn to Christ? Will you accept the indescribable gift of redemption, forgiveness of your sins, relationship with Him? You say, I'm not exactly sure how to do that, Scott. Well, on that connection card, backside, top corner, there's a line that says, I want to have a personal relationship with Jesus. Just check that. I'll follow up with you about that if you want to talk about it. Will you resist temptation with the help of Christ? See, the good news is He will help you. He will empower you. He will deliver you. He will build a holy, just, righteous life with you. If you'll do life with Him. If you'll resist temptation. Will you? And finally, will you repeat one bit of good news that you got this morning to one person about Christ? Will you do that? You see, when you do that, you not only have the potential to bring encouragement and some kind of God activity to somebody's life, but you also simultaneously do this deepening of your own experience of Christ. The sharing of good news doubles it and ultimately makes it exponential. Would you do that? Just just one piece of good news to one person. Now, here's what we're going to do over the next few weeks. I hope I'm going to ask you to. I, I just want us to see how much good news can we share with the people that are around us. And so you'll see on the back side of your connection card. Would you look at that right now? There's a line on the right hand side of that back side of the connection card that says I shared good news this past week. If you did. Something that God brought into your heart last Sunday, and then during the week you shared that with somebody? Would you just check that? Because we're going to tally them for weeks, and we're just going to see how much good news can we be a part of sharing. And you go, well, Scott, I actually shared it with three people. Well, in that blank, instead of putting a check, would you just write three? You go, well, uh, my spouse and I just fill out one card. Okay, would you create an extra space and check in both if both of you did? We just want to keep up. I'm not going to be calling anybody and saying, hey, you didn't share any good news, okay? <laughs> I got no bad news for you about that, okay? We're just going to see what kind of good thing is God doing with the good news that he's bringing our way these days. And so uh, if you would do us the favor of just letting me know and indicate that on your card today, and I'm going to, it's going to be a part of the card every week for weeks to come. Um, but with respect to today... Did you get it? You got a piece of good news to share with somebody else in a very 
bad news world. Let's pray. Lord, thanks for the encouragement to our own hearts. Thanks for allowing us to get a little more of a glimpse of who you are and what you're like. And uh, Father, we now want to live that good news. And we want to be a sharer of that good news. So we pray for you to bless us in that kind of way. And we also want to now honor you and worship you with tithes and offerings and other kinds of commitments that we would make in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.